I am on a group text. Okay. Which I feel like is already a very fraught sentence. People feel very strongly about group texts. You and I are in a lot of group texts. I love a group text. Right? Okay. I'm in a group text right now where I don't know a lot of people's numbers. So they're people that I've met, people that I like. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time I'm encountering their number. Mm -hmm. And so one of... My friends recently texted like, hey, can everybody just do a roll call? Like, I don't have a lot of these numbers. That's brilliant. I've never I never thought to do that. I always just awkwardly wait forever until I can put the pieces together and then That's what I was people. doing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Okay. Good, 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 good. Here's the thing, though. Instead of everyone then just texting back, Tracy Harrison, Rowan Hall, blah, 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 everyone's being real annoying about it. They're texting, like, gifts and pictures of themselves and, like... Someone sent a video of, like, the roll call from Mickey Mouse Club or something. But no it's all very funny. But I'm like, I still don't know who you are. Oh, yeah, that is – I don't have a solution for that other than my classic just, like, okay, then I will never contact you because I don't know who you are. I have that with work. There's a, a work group chat that I'm like, <laughs> my boss will text it out. And I'm like, I know all the people that are in this group. I don't know who all these numbers belong to. Yeah, it's awful. Well, okay, so I've decided now that everyone is going in my phone as the stupid joke that they made. I was so going to suggest that. There is someone in my phone as Mickey Mouse Club, and there is someone in my phone now as Skeletor GIF. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but That's I good. Still don't know who these people are in relation to the people that I will be shortly encountering. Like, hey, X, Y, Z. Like, I can't text you ever. Oh, God. That's hilarious <laughs> and frustrating in equal measures. <laughs> I then started wondering, you know, if I were to respond with a GIF, knowing that I would then in someone's phone be this gif like skeletor mm -hmm, gif mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what would i respond with and so far the farthest that i've gotten is both road to el dorado oh that's good mine was easily dog saying this is fine <laughs> the on fire yeah body. that's my icon at work <laughs> like i'm I like locked and loaded i know exactly what mine is that's so funny i always think of you with that gif because if i send it to you out of nowhere you know exactly where i'm at it's one of my favorite things in the entire world i love it so much I love the arson cat. Ooh, that's a good one, too. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever is sitting in their car going, what are these girls talking about? <laughs> I'm not sorry. I refuse to be sorry. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I'm arson cat. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison, and I'm the this-is-fine dog, the epitome of anxiety, really. <laughs> And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast where we talk about original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and gifology that makes the world Githology. so fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're officially changing it to gifology. <laughs> I cannot wait for someone to come along and go, actually, it's gifology. It's not graphical image formatting. We're not going down this road. <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> Every week, our podcast researches a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So, 
dear listener who has stuck with us through all this, if you'd like to support our podcast, consider ordering some of your own very cool merch. Ooh, go for the Julie Dobney poster. I love that poster. I have one in my house, so I'm partial to it. I feel like that's the dark horse of the merch store because you look at it and then you look closer and you're like, oh, so we're smashing the patriarchy today. We're just crushing it real hard. It's so good. It's a fun infographic. We love an infographic. So if you want to get your own merch, you can check it out on our website, willingandfable.com. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. It's a riot over there. And by over there, I mean on our Discord. Our Discord, our Discord is quite cool. It feels – actually, no one knows this. I think, Tracy, you don't even know this. Oh. I made – like, in my head, a mind palace of what our Discord channel looks like. Like, if everyone could come in and hang out. Yeah. It is not unlike the bridge to Terabithia, where they have their, like, little hangout space in the woods. Um, so, <laughs> gosh darn it. It's in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. It's put together with, like, wood that clearly all the kids salvaged from their dad's construction of projects course. or their mom's handiwork or whatever. And... When you go inside, it is then like a haunted Victorian mansion with libraries and gaming rooms. <laughs> but you have to go in the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I imagine it like one of those kids' imaginations where you see the outside and it's all ramshackled. And then as soon as the kid goes in, it's like the most incredible building you've ever seen. One thousand percent. So on the outside, you're in the woods where fairies are definitely gonna make you trip and fall over a tree root and then you go on the inside and you're in a spooky mansion where a ghost is gonna go like and you turn around and there's nothing there a ghost is also gonna trip you on your walk in (laughs) oh no that's just us at this point (laughs) yeah at a certain point there's no fairies or ghosts around we're just tripping and blaming it on whatever mythical creature comes to mind mothman just clotheslined me Remember that month where we both fell down the stairs within a week of each other? Yeah, yeah. I'm still paying for it. I'm, I'm going to physical therapy because I fell down the stairs because I'm very graceful. Your back was like, your attachment style is insecure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one got me. That one got me really good. All right, all right, everyone. So the last way you can support our podcast is by putting on your fanciest clothes and throwing a tea party for yourself and some stuffed animals. Oh. But no matter what you do, we're so happy to have you here. Oh. Right? (laughs) I think Leah would come and hang out in our spooky mind palace. Yeah, Leah already hangs out in our spooky mind palace. If you want to say hi to Leah from Greenleaf Geek, you can join our Discord. Oh, nice. Smooth transition. Hey, why are we talking about Leah? That's because Leah is the artist behind Greenleaf Geek, and Greenleaf Geek has been a sponsor of Willing and Fable for quite a long time, which makes us feel so proud because we play D&D all the time. And having a company that basically makes D&D happen, Mm -hmm. it's, listen, the stuffed animals at my tea party are so proud of me. (laughs) They are proud of you. I I love that we get to be sponsored by Leah. It was so exciting. So recently I went and played D&D in person with one of the one of the four groups I'm in now somehow. Oh, that's um, so cool. I'm so jealous. It's really fun. It's with my sister. So I got to go down and visit my sister and her friends and we played in person. 
And when I took out all my dice, because they listened to the podcast, they're like, wait, are those the Greenleaf Geek dice that you talked about on the podcast? And I got to show them. And like, we talked about my Theo ones and the inspirations for them. And they have their own Greenleaf Geek dice that they bought because they got really excited about D&D. So it was, it was like, I felt a little bit like my dice were celebrities. It was great. Oh my God, that is so cool. It was awesome. Oh, okay. First of all, your sister's the best. Yes. Like anytime people acknowledge our podcast in a way that mostly acknowledges other people, like she acknowledged that she listens to your podcast, but she was like, let's talk about Greenleaf Geek, <laughs> which is so cool. <laughs> I recently threw a set of Greenleaf Geek dice into my purse. They're my Galactic Disaster Buy dice that Very she good. handmade. Yeah. Do I have a reason? No, I just felt in my heart of hearts that I would need dice on the go. And so totally unprompted, I just toss them in my purse. Mine live in my purse. I can relate to that completely. I'm going to get stabbed by a D4 guaranteed. Uh, next time I loose it. in your purse? Yeah, girl, I did not oh think this God. through. Oh, my God. It was it was a spark of intuition. I was like, I'm going to need Okay, we need to get you. This is luck. actually a bag from Leah. You can hear. ASMR. Dice ASMR. <laughs> Um, and this, like, something like this, you can take a little a little drawstring bag and put in your purse. And I've got dice in here. So this is all D6. This is my sorcerer dice. But very convenient. Babe, I've got, oh, I don't know, ha- 10 of those types of bags laying around. I could do it. I just didn't. Respect. I understand. No judgment. Hey, listeners, if you want to be cool and have dice loose in your purse or organized in your purse or show them to your sister or bring them to your game, you should check out GreenleafGeek.com. Leah makes custom handmade resin dice to your wants and desires. She also has the coolest collection of curated dice. It is always where I go to shop when I have new people that I'm playing with because it's like the best way to get them into like the fun little shiny extras of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, it is. So if you would like your own set of dice from Greenleaf Geek, you can check out greenleafgeek.com. And don't forget to use our coupon code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Trace, we've been giddy and excited and gushing about all of our, like, girlfriends lately. Yeah. Our our gal pals. Yes. (laughs) And... I feel like when we got to this part of the season, as we had previously mapped it, both you and I chose to move up topics about badass women from history that were much lower in the season. Yeah. Originally. Yeah. I, we, we made sure – well, one, we, like, made sure to put them in. Like, we were like, these are definitely going in. And then as we've been rearranging and rethinking what we want to cover, these have stayed but actually moved – to where they are now because we got so excited about them. We're like, well, we have to prioritize these. Listen, podcast planning for us is trying to stay in that pocket of being excited about future stories and having the stories you want right now when you want it. Like, have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) Oh my God, that's such a good way to put it. (laughs) So today, I am so excited to cover this topic. I don't even know when I first heard about it. It might have been on TikTok. It might have been in a book. Who knows? But... We're talking about Dido Elizabeth Bell. So, Rowan, I want you to close your eyes. Listeners, close your eyes, unless you're driving, in which case, focus on the road. But listen to my voice. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to imagine that you're in England at an old country estate 
in Hampstead. It's beautiful and grand. It's a gorgeous old estate that is surrounded on either side by beautiful gardens. You can feel the soft summer breeze going by, the scent of flowers on the wind. And as you go inside, you see a room that is grand. Tall, floor-to-ceiling windows that are arched, outdone only by the domed ceilings they meet up with. And there, on the wall, you spot a very curious painting. That painting is now hanging in the Scone Palace in Perth, but this incredible piece of art still sparks debate to this day. It's a double portrait in which we see two women, both dressed in silks and pearls and all sorts of finery, posing for the artist. The painting is a classic late 18th century portrait of two aristocratic women, except for one unique aspect. One of the women is mixed race. So Rowan, I have that painting here for you to take a look at. Oh my gosh, right off the bat, these two women are classically beautiful in mm-hmm. that like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, blushing-cheeked, right, right. charming smile like way. It so on the right-hand side there's a very pale white woman who has either like dark blonde or light brown hair. She's got flowers in a wreath on her hair. She's got this pastel pink dress that okay, not exactly the correct style, but you know when you imagine Marie Antoinette in all of her like Sofia Coppola fluffy pinkness. Yes, all the pastel beauty. Yep. Right. It is that vibe. Mm-hmm. And she's holding a book open and then she has her hand outstretched. The woman in on the left, who is Dido Bell, is mm-hmm. in a very interesting position. Yes. She's coming out from just behind this other woman they are of equal size in the portrait so there's not a ton of depth happening between Mm -hmm. them and she's leaning in and holding what looks like like a disassembled christmas wreath meets a handful of grapes like yes yep yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like a fancy fruit basket and she's wearing this white or maybe light green dress that looks satiny, like shiny, beautiful Mm -hmm. satin that makes those swishy noises when you walk. And she has her hair parted in the middle with kind of the swooping bangs on either side. She has a white or a same kind of similar green uh, wrap tied around her hair with a feather poking at the top. And she's bringing her hand up to pointing to her cheek very charmingly. Like There is a lot of debate about that pose with her finger on her cheek. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Like, if I were going to write a story about this painting, she would know something. Mm-hmm. Like, something good or bad or mischievous or fun, but she would just – she would have the knowledge. Yes. Even though the other woman's holding the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, as you pointed out, the subject of this painting are Lady Elizabeth Murray on the right and Dido Elizabeth Bell on the left. This painting was formerly attributed to Johann Zoffany, but – Following research by the BBC TV program Fake or Fortune, it has now been verified by the Scottish National Gallery as a painting in the Zoffany style by the Scottish portraitist David Martin. Ooh, that's a cool scandal. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. That that was like in the 2000s, I think they figured that out. So it's not a Zoffany. It's by David Martin. With the different artist 
Are they thinking it still came from roughly the same time period, just from someone else? Right. Yeah. Okay. Because it's in his style, so it was the time of his style. And also it had to be, obviously, when these women were alive, so time period still matches up. Right. Belle's history is so unique and captivating that her story was actually brought to the big screen in a movie titled Belle in 2013, in which Gugu Mbatha-Ra plays our leading lady. I think, isn't Amelia Clark in that movie? I think she might be. It was a pretty star-studded cast. Uh, Amelia Clark's audition for that role is on YouTube, and it is such a cool audition to watch if you're into that kind of thing. That's awesome. I hope, I hope I'm thinking of the right movie, but she does call the person she's talking to Dido, so I'm going to assume. Yeah. <laughs> I think I remember seeing her in the movie poster. Ama Asante, the director of Belle, explains why the painting inspired her film. Quote, You see a biracial girl, a woman of color, who's depicted slightly higher than her white counterpart. She's staring directly out with a very confident eye. This painting flipped tradition and everything the 18th century told us about portraiture. What I saw was an opportunity to tell a story that would combine art, history, and politics. Oh, I didn't even think about the fact that Dido Elizabeth Bell is standing higher. I didn't either until I saw that quote. The thing that I thought was really cool about the painting when I looked is she is technically behind the other woman, but the other woman is reaching out her hand to her. They're yes. clearly as close as they could possibly be. Their heads are of the same size. You know, mm -hmm. they're even though she's behind, it looked more like a compositional choice than a status choice yes. in the way we we so often are used yes. to looking for. Oh, don't worry. We will come back to that painting later on for more <laughs> discussions. But before we jump into that painting in the life of Dido Elizabeth Bell, it's important for us to understand the cultural context in which she lived. So, Bell was born, most likely, in 1761, right in the middle of the Georgian period in England. English heritage describes this time as the period in which Britain established itself as an international power at the center of an expanding empire. An accelerating change from the 1700s onwards made it the world's first industrialized nation. This means that during Bell's lifetime, she would have known about the American Revolutionary War, which took place between 1775 and 1783. Unfortunately, she would not live to see the slave trade abolished or slavery made illegal as both happened fairly shortly after her death. However, she did live through the Industrial Revolution, which began in 1770, and introduced new technologies, such as steam power. It's wild to think of steam power existing at the same time as the dresses in that painting. I know. That's why I had to include it, because the things that were happening, you look at that painting and you think, I always think of the romantic style of painting of, like, the girl on the swing, a very yes. classic. And at the same time that's happening, you've got the American Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic Wars, you've got steam power the slave trade is still alive and well there's pirates out in the seas isn't the girl on the swing painting isn't there a city burning down in the background in the upper right of that painting that no one ever talks about hold on i'm googling it no i don't think so maybe i'm thinking of the wrong painting are you thinking of the it's the the one where they're all swimming by the ruins i think i am yeah 
Jamie has both of these hanging in her bedroom, so I, I see them very often. That's so charming. Nothing like a man looking up a girl's skirt while they're swinging on the swings. But don't forget her little shoe flying off in the wind. It It is a very fun painting. <laughs> I love it. Listen, give me Baroque and Romantic style art and I'm happy as a clam. That swing is also so intense. <laughs> <laughs> this is so good for an audio-only medium. <laughs> we so badly want an art history podcast. <laughs> we are neither qualified nor capable. <laughs> so true. All right. English Heritage goes on to write that from 1788... George III's intermittent mental illness raised the prospect of the regency of his son, George. Though his formal rule as Prince Regent lasted only from 1811 until his own ascension as George IV in 1820, the entire late Georgian period is often labeled Regency. Defined for many by the novels of Jane Austen, the Regency period also gave birth to the works of romantic poets like William Wordsworth and John Keats. The elegance of Beau Brummel's fashion and John Nash's London terraces, and the gradual replacement of the robustly corrupt culture of the early Georgian period with a new high moral seriousness. In the background of all of this was the long conflict from 1793 to 1815 with revolutionary and Napoleonic France. In this time period, white men ruled everything. A white woman stood a chance at a comfortable life, but this was almost entirely based on her ability to marry well. A person of color, especially a woman of color, was at the bottom of the social hierarchy. To see a woman of color as anything other than a slave or a servant was practically unheard of in upper-class society. So, with that context set, let's get into the life and legacy of Dido Elizabeth Bell. Little is known about Dido's mother, Maria Bell, as she was an enslaved woman in the British West Indies in the mid-18th century. Bell's father was 24-year-old Sir John Lindsay, who was a career naval officer and then-captain of the British warship HMS Trent, based in the West Indies. Lindsay is thought to have found Maria Bell held as a slave on a Spanish ship which his forces captured in the Caribbean. Lindsay returned to London after the war in 1765 with his young daughter, Dido Bell. When they arrived in England, he took her to Kenwood House, just outside the city, the home of his uncle, William Murray, 1st Earl of Mansfield, and his wife, Elizabeth Murray, Countess of Mansfield. So they were a couple. They were a couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is not how I expected that to go. Right. He was. So John Lindsay was married, had another, like had a wife. They didn't have any oh. children together. I don't know if they married before or after he met Maria, but he met Maria. They were a couple. You know, they gave birth to their daughter, Dido. He brought Maria and Dido back to England and set Dido up with William and Elizabeth Murray, who were her aunt and uncle. Wow. Mm-hmm. Listen, he's doing what he should be doing. Right. Maybe even less. I'm just I'm just surprised because I is. expected even, even less. Right. That's why it's so unique to see her situation because most men who go sailing and meet a woman and have a child just kind of leave them behind. That's the thing you hear a lot is bastard children being left all over the place. And he had other bastard children. For some reason, he made sure that Dido, Elizabeth Bell... 
was set up in a very comfortable life. And she was. So he brought her to William and Elizabeth Murray's home. And it was believed that they continued, Marie and John continued their relationship until 1772, when she left for Pensacola, Florida, to live in a plot of land purchased for her by John Lindsay. Mm. At this point, he was knighted, so he was Sir John Lindsay. And he did have many illegitimate children, but no legitimate children. So he sent her away to Florida. Yeah, he sent her away to Florida. And it's not known if that was by choice for her and Dido or if that was something he decided for them. Right. But it, it worked out well for both of them in, in oh. some ways. Like she had a good life in Pensacola, it seems. Like not much is known about her. But um, obviously Dido was very well taken care of and educated by the Murrays, which we will get into. So – Bell was baptized as Dido Elizabeth Bell in 1766 at St. George's Bloomsbury. The Murray family raised her as an educated woman along with their niece and Dido's cousin, Lady Elizabeth Murray, whose mother had died. So, the portrait we saw earlier. White woman on the right. That is Lady Elizabeth Murray. The niece of Lord and Lady Murray. And Dido, also niece of Lord and Lady Murray, raised together by that couple. Did they have their own children at all? No. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the two were raised as equals in many ways. Um, they were, you know, educated the same way, treated really well. We'll get into some of the differences that they experienced throughout their life, though. So, like I said, Dida received the same education as her cousin Elizabeth, and they lived in the same house with all the same finery. She slept every night in a four-poster bed in her own beautifully decorated bedroom, and she also received an annual allowance of 30 pounds, which is several times more than the wages of domestic workers at the time. However, this is a case where things were not always equal between Dido and Elizabeth because Elizabeth received 100 pounds annually, but that was more likely a reflection of the fact that she was actually a beneficiary in her own right and an heiress to her family's fortune, whereas Dido was illegitimate. Hmm. God, the politics of being a rich person's child, but especially being a a girl Mm -hmm. rich person's child. Oh my God, absolutely. It's the the politics of it, the way it works, the inheritance structures, it's insane. So here's another case where Belle may not have always been treated the same as her cousin. This comes from the History Channel. They say that it seems that when there were guests at Kenwood, Belle didn't dine with them, but joined the party in its later stages. Although she may not have kept company with the guests for the entirety of their visit, she often left them with a good impression of her. This is clear from a passage taken from the obituary of Sir John Lindsay, her father, written in the London Chronicle in 1788. It goes... He has died, we believe, without any legitimate issue, but has left one natural daughter, who has been brought up in Lord Mansfield's family almost from her infancy, and whose amiable disposition and accomplishments have gained her the highest respect from all his lordship's relations and visitants. And you have to know that for her to get even just like baseline compliments like that, she had to be doing double, triple, like so much more than what any young woman would be doing. Yes, she had to be perfect to be seen as good enough. Right. And you see that in in a lot of different ways. 
English Heritage, which runs the Kenwood estate now, has a quote that says, Her position in the household may have been that of a loved but poor relation, and she did not always dine with guests. Somehow, Dido Elizabeth Bell was both too important to be with the servants and not good enough to dine with the family in public. Though this fact is actually debated, and some historians believe that, for the most part, Dido did always dine with her family, regardless of if there were guests at the dinner or not. This confusion comes from a quote from Thomas Hutchinson in his diary about an experience he had with the family. And, and you'll see why his experience with the family may have been an exception, not the rule, given the way he talks about Dido. He wrote... A black came in after dinner and sat with the ladies, and after coffee walked with the company in the gardens, one of the young ladies having her arm within the other. She had a very high cap, and her wool was much frizzled in her neck, but not enough to answer the large curls now in fashion. I knew her history before, but my lord mentioned it again. Sir Lindsay, having taken her mother prisoner in a Spanish vessel, brought her to England, where she delivered this girl, of which she was then with child, and which was taken care of by Lord M., and has been educated by his family. He calls her Dido, which I suppose is all the name she has. He knows he has been reproached for showing a fondness for her. I dare say not criminal. Just don't talk, uh -huh. buddy. <laughs> like, even in your own diary, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, that's an inside thought. You keep that inside. You just so inside that it no longer exists. Stop. Mm -hmm. So either that is a, an example of the, the kind of treatment she was given all of the time, or it was an exception because he, like, clearly they're like, well, we're not going to have Dido come out while this guy's coming over for dinner because he's horrible. Kind of hard to Yeah. Talk. We have no way of knowing, but it's interesting to speculate. Like, would her family just be like, oh, he's a crappy racist. Like, maybe we just don't have her be around him more than is necessary for society. I don't know. I feel like that's wishful thinking on my part. You know. But get out, you scuzzy Hutchinson. Yeah, his <laughs> entry is, it's not flattering. And there's some other people who wrote a few things that we'll get to that is not flattering. Although we should all keep diaries. We should just start writing them on paper because stuff like this is so valuable it's to so hear. Valuable. I think we should all do what Anne Lister did and write in a secret code and so you can get real honest. And then someday someone yep. will break that code and we'll have a really good picture of your life. Trace, you have to be smart enough to develop a code and then keep the code and then like n not too excited so you don't tell people <laughs> about the code. I'm not saying it's a perfect plan. I want one of those classic diary, like, password diaries that you that my cousins always had. Like, where you had to, like, say it exactly the same way because the tech wasn't good enough. <laughs> I never had one of those. I just had one of those with a little lock. And you, like, you know, you wore the little key for the lock as, like, a necklace or something. Of course, as you do. Mm -hmm. I had I had older cousins who had the, the fancy, the fancy one. <laughs> <laughs> I never had the fancy ones. So there is a brief reference to Bell that also occurs in Volume 2 of James Beattie's Elements of Moral Science. Beattie refers to her intelligence, saying, But I happened, a few days after, to see his theory overturned and my conjecture established by a Negro girl about ten years old, 
who had been six years in England and not only spoke with the articulation and accent of a native, but repeated some pieces of poetry with a degree of elegance which would have been admired in any English child of her years. Absolutely an example of her having to excel in every possible way Yep, for these people to just <sighs> see her as good enough. Barely. Barely. There are so many qualifiers in these diary entries. Following this statement I just read is a footnote that states, She was in Lord Mansfield's family, and at his desire and in his presence repeated those pieces of poetry to me. She was called Dido, and I believe is still alive. So, that set of quotes and the quote from Thomas Hutchinson are some of the only direct references to Dido found in primary source material. So it's like you mentioned, Dido was clearly raised as a lady whose many talents we now know include music, writing, reciting poetry. She had to be the best at all of those things to be seen as good enough. And, and she did have beautiful handwriting, and that led Lord Mansfield to often request that she be the one to write down his dictated letters, which is a role more often undertaken by a male clerk. This not only shows the trust that Lord Mansfield placed in Dido, but also the close relationship they must have shared. It's funny, now in America, having gone through like the 50s, everybody watched Mad Men, that whole thing. Right. We think of secretaries as being women, but at the time, that would have been man's knowledge, mm -hmm. you know? it that That's actually cool. <laughs> she, for all that she was in a very weird place in society... She was very loved by her family. You can just see very clearly they all adored her. Her cousin, her aunt and uncle, they took care of her and they really cherished her as a person. Did they always do the best things for her? No. Was it a difficult time for her to be as the person she was? 100%. But what gave her the ability to be who she was was the fact that her family supported her in who she was as opposed to just pushing her to the side. Right, and the level of social status they had to even be able to do that at all. Absolutely. That ties perfectly into the next thing I'm going to talk about, which is her uncle, Lord Mansfield, eventually became Britain's most powerful judge. He became it is. Lord Chief Justice in 1772, which meant he presided over a few different landmark cases, but one in particular was the case of a runaway slave called James Somerset. He ruled that a master could not take a slave out of Britain by force— a judgment seen as a key stage in the eventual abolition of the slave trade. In his judgment, he stated that slavery is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it. Look at you, buddy! I know! This was a very divisive ruling. Very divisive. And it's unclear how much of it was him really believing what he was saying versus how much he just kind of saw where things were going I think it was a mix of the two. There were earlier rulings he had where he wasn't quite so on the right side of history. Okay. But, you know, he got there. He he ultimately ruled in these cases in a way that did push for the end of the slave trade. But a lot of people actually blamed Dido for his change in behavior. They thought that she had this control over the family and she was the one ruling it, which obviously is ridiculous. Of course. It's like the, their societal version of, like, witches, man. Yes. Like, 
Yes. She was and, often very exoticized. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. Oh, oh. they... Th- we'll get into it. They were throwing terms. I mean, they were equating her... St- there was... There was Tons of different things they're equating her to, one of which was a lot of Hinduism. Well, oh, that, what that's, yeah, okay, colonies. Uh, Of course, they're, they were thinking of that. I don't know, like, why my brain wouldn't go there either. I'm still lost in satin dresses, but of course they got creepy about it. And this time period is like, we're right in that fun space where the Brits, the French, they all just want to get a little spooky about things. Mm -hmm. And so this, like, esoteric quote-unquote uh we're mythology the victorian like esoteric mysticism we're yeah. in the exoticism phase very that, much that's exactly the way to say it you're mm-hmm. you're absolutely right yeah I, I i'm i'm picking up what you're putting down i get what you're saying so moving on <laughs> ellie overthrow jones writes for find my past that Lord Mansfield was involved in many such cases including the zong ship massacre of 1781 This massacre was where African slaves were thrown overboard by the crew, which resulted in an insurance claim for loss of property. Mansfield found the crew to be at fault and that it may even have been a case of insurance fraud. It's thought that some of his decisions moved Britain closer to abolishing the slave trade. Yeah, it's not great. Okay. It's not great, but at least Lord Mansfield did rule that they were terrible people. And not only do they not get their insurance claim, they actually committed insurance fraud. This is one of those moments that happens so often that I feel like... I feel some responsibility as, like, a white woman to congratulate the bare minimum from people so that no one else ever has to. Right. Just be like, like, you'd... Good job. Like, don't stop to... This is in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Keep it up. Yep. You stepped so that, over the bar. Let's lift it up a little bit. Right. And then everybody else can be like, you don't get a cookie. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah, cookies. We gave, them, we gave them crumbs. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah! After Lady Mansfield died, Dido stayed on to care for her uncle, reading newspapers to him at breakfast as he succumbed to rheumatism. <sighs> he died at 88 years old in 1793. Providing for Dido in his will, as well as setting aside a substantial sum in a codicil, which I had to Google, and is, uh, it's an addition to a will. (laughs) Bonus will! (laughs) Yeah, basically, it's like, hey, this is an official part of my will, but it's just an addition to what I already have. So you don't have to change your current will, you can just add it on. Okay. I didn't know what it was, so I had to look that up. I have family who did that on sticky notes. Attached to the will. Like, on the will. They're just like, here's some extra information. Signed, me. Okay, <laughs> you know, if, if it works. <laughs> when you got that good handwriting. Ugh, no, I don't, and I wish I did. Do, I wish I did. You have one of the most distinct sets of handwriting of people I know. Really? Thank oh, you. Yeah. That, that's like a very nicer, it's a nicer view of the reality of my handwriting, is that very few people can read it. <laughs> You are one of them. <laughs> I was going to be like, no, it makes perfect sense. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, Tracy, you're in that 1%. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have two different kind of stories. They're both two different sort of letters from different perspectives. So this is the first one, and it is – well, we'll get into it. it. It is my version of what I think people should have been thinking about when they saw Dido at Kenwood House. Okay. 
my dearest cousin. I'm enjoying my stay in Hampstead immensely. I find the country to be quite diverting and far more interesting than you could imagine. Though I spend most of my days taking walks on the grounds and exploring the late spring gardens, I have not lacked for intrigue. Oh, I must tell you the most incredible story about the experience I had just the other night. Mama and I were invited to Kenwood Estate for dinner. Everything started out normally. We were with the family in their lovely dining room. It was myself, Mama, Miss Elizabeth Murray, and Lord and Lady Mansfield. On the whole, it was a lovely, if rather uneventful, evening. That is, until we sat for our after-dinner coffee. Mama and I had just sat down with Lady Mansfield and Elizabeth when a new young lady walked in. She had a rich, dark complexion and a mass of intricately woven curls atop her head. And her gown. Oh, such exquisite silks. I've... I've never seen before, and, and she moved and spoke with such grace. She was all smiles, and she held conversation with us for the remainder of the entire evening. I know I'm young, and I have not seen much of the world, but I've never seen or heard of someone who looks like her in the position of a lady. Mama was quite scandalized by the whole affair and spoke of that evening for days afterward. In fact, when I asked her why more women of means didn't look like Miss Dido, that was the young lady's name, she told me that it simply isn't done. She said women like her should be servants and nothing more. But I disagree. Oh, cousin, if I could be but half as accomplished as Miss Dido, I will count myself as a great success. She can read and write and play piano and sing songs and recite poetry with such conviction. And to do all of this when no one even believes it's possible of you, that's a talent that few possess. I can only hope that our paths cross again once more, as I believe I have much to learn from Miss Dido Elizabeth Bell. Yours, Anna. That letter reminds me so much of how all my girlfriends talk about each other. Like, yes. Like, oh my God, she came <laughs> to the party and she looks so pretty. And at karaoke, she sang a song and it was the most perfect karaoke I've ever. <laughs> like, it's just that, like. That is the energy I want. I came, actually, it's funny. I wrote this after we came out of our all girls D&D group. And I was just like, <laughs> that energy. I was like, that's the energy we need. Because the, the, the other one that I'll read later on in the episode I wrote very much focused on kind of Dido and, and how she thinks. And then I was just like, you know what? We need some, like, women supporting women energy in this story. We need to give her what she didn't get in her time, which is someone writing a letter about how cool she is. <laughs> the girls, the girls, the gays, and the theys are just always like, ugh. They're just supporting, you know? We love the girls, the gays, and the theys. Everyone else, we're, you're welcome to the party. But you got to bring that energy. Now that I know when you wrote this, I can totally see influences of our last <laughs> D&D session in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so later in life, in 1785, Dido's lifelong companion and close friend and cousin, Lady Elizabeth Murray, was married off to a distant cousin named George Finch Haddon. No, stop with the cousins. Uh, I mean, it says distant. A distant cousin. We don't know how distant that is, but... Girl. <laughs> Listen, people did things differently in those times. 
Yeah, no, Rowan's making a face at me, and I get it. I'm with you. I'm not against it. <laughs> but, it, you know, certain things you don't get to bat an eyelash at in history. Let's put it that way. You're not wrong. <laughs> After Elizabeth was married off, Dido remained at Kenwood House for almost another decade, finally leaving the estate upon the death of Lord Mansfield in 1793. Since she was technically still a slave at the time of her adopted father's death, he also put in his will that she was to be considered free and he ensured that she would be well kept with a lump sum of 500 pounds upon his death and another 100 pounds every year thereafter. Oh, wow. What mm -hmm. a detail I hadn't thought of. I know, because obviously she went about in society, kind of lived life as a lady. Very, very technically, she was born as a slave. From a slave mother. <sighs> so, upon her uncle's death, he ensured that she was considered a free woman. I uh, imagine how stressful that would be after he passed to then. I know. I have to go out into the world and do something unlike anything how yeah, and unlike how you've lived previously. Right. Knowing that you've been given a status that people won't respect necessarily in a world in which status is everything right and the person who was your big protector is now gone it seems that she did okay i think at that point she was pretty established but i got curious about that money so 500 pounds upon his death 100 pounds every year thereafter how much was that really we love a conversion can i try to guess sure it's, um, a, it's a little like wiggly because, like, like, the numbers don't sound like they would be enough to live on now, but things, like, people lived off of less back then. Okay, wiggly. So, like, 500 would have been 15,000? That's so close. Are you serious? Yes. So 500 per year is around 17,000 pounds in today's terms. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> I'm so impressed. <laughs> I have no right to be as proud as I am. I'm so proud. So in Sense and Sensibility, Marianne mentions a sum of 1,800 to 2,000 pounds a year as being an adequate amount in an age where male servants earned around 20 to 60 pounds a year and a female servant earned 5 to 15 pounds a year. While these incomes seem desperately low, room and board was usually included. Coal costs around 50 pounds per year, and the rent of a medium-sized house in London ranged from 12 to 25 pounds per year. If a family's income was less than 100 pounds for a single person or 200 pounds for a couple, then the head of the house would probably have to work for a living. So, Dido got 100 pounds a year from her uncle with the lump sum of 500 pounds. So, in theory, she could live off of that and live a pretty good lifestyle, but... She did eventually marry. She married John de Vinier, a Frenchman who may have worked as a gentleman's steward. They got married on December 5th, 1793 at St. George's Hanover Square. The two of them had three sons together, twins Charles and John, both baptized at St. George's on May 8th, 1795, and William Thomas baptized the same place on January 26th in 1802. Dido Elizabeth Bell passed away three years later in 1805 at 43 years old. 
She was buried at St. George's Fields in Westminster and later reinterred elsewhere in the 1970s. Do we know what status her marriage afforded her and then what status her children had? Her children, so her status afforded her a very just respectable marriage. Okay. Um, And her children went on to, two of them worked for the East India Trading Company. And another one, I think he did a, he became an admiral, I believe. And um, it talked about them getting married and, and kind of their lives. And then the last living descendant of Dido Elizabeth Bell passed away childless in the 70s in South Africa. Well, the fact that her children were all sons, mm-hmm. m- my first thought, and this is so sad, is that that is such a, a tick in their favor. Right. Towards it's society. such a benefit for like, them. Right. Like the fact that they're men and they're now more white passing, mm-hmm. which, again, is so horrible to have to think about. But it's a, a step toward more ease in mm-hmm. their life. Mm-hmm. So hearing that, it doesn't surprise me that they ended up with, you know, military careers, things like that, because they it's it's just one step yep. toward that exactly the kind of status you need. Yep. Malarkey. She died young. She died young. I was really bummed out when I read. I was like, wait, how old was her kid? I was like, oh, three. Great. Her husband went on to remarry and he had a few more children with his second wife and they raised her three sons as well. This is totally me just making up stories, but I just <laughs> imagine her being such a good mom. Like the mom that reads poetry really well, you know, is going to be the mom who's like epic at bedtime stories. Yes. I thought the same thing. <laughs> So let's circle back to that painting now that we know a little bit more about Dido and her cousin. This painting has sparked so many discussions over the centuries. There is a great paper written by Madison Blomquist in which she writes that, quote, There is a controversial scholarship about the symbolic connotations of the painting, and for good reason. The work communicates a contradictory message. At first glance, it seems that there are some elements of the painting that suggest equality and exalt the unique, albeit problematic, status of Dido Elizabeth Bell as a mixed-race woman. Dido's form is nearly level with Elizabeth's, even though she was considered, at times, a poor relation. Because Dido's figure is in a state of motion, she's leaning forward and her blue shawl flows behind her, our eyes are immediately drawn to her angled form, as opposed to Elizabeth's regal, stationary posture reminiscent of Queen's. Some have suggested that Elizabeth's outstretched arm is indicative of affection and closeness, as though she's drawing Dido near. Oh, God, is it the opposite? Like, she's pushing her away? Like, if this were a gift, the next moment she'd be... That's (gasps) what she's getting into. So, aside from the symbolic connotations of the piece, there are some interesting things happening in the realm of femininity. Both subjects as women confront the viewer directly, taking control of the viewer's gaze, While their expressions are not burdened with questionable implications, they are nonetheless striking. Both Dido and Elizabeth smile as if sharing a joke. Perhaps this is a positive feature indicative of their close relationship as cousins. However, some of these same features can also be interpreted inversely. For example, it could be argued that there is almost a sense of restriction in Elizabeth's arm as if she's preventing Dido from reaching her destination. The azure shawl that flows between the two women is reminiscent of the Venus scarf motif, 
which furthers the feeling of limitation and could be seen as a sophisticated means of control. Elizabeth also holds an emblem of her class, a book, symbolic of education and refinement. This, along with her courtly pose, harkens back to medieval depictions of saintly women poring over their book of hours. Dido, on the other hand, holds a platter of luxurious imported fruits. This iconography carries with it a lot of baggage. The fall, with its implications of the impurity of women and dark-skinned people becoming a cursed race, British colonization and trade, even the expression on a silver platter comes to mind with the implications of a woman being consumable. It is significant that while Elizabeth is stationary with a book in her hand, playing the passive female role, Dido is actively engaged in a task that would have been associated with servitude. End quote. I just didn't get any of that, apparently, when I was looking at this. Oh my gosh. There's a million ways to interpret it. Another interpretation that I saw was that the original portrait was just Elizabeth and her arm was outstretched already, potentially holding that blue shawl in the wind or something, holding the fruits, something like that, and that Dido was added in as an afterthought. I don't know that I believe that, but it's a possibility. I mean, there's just questions on questions on questions with this painting. Why would there have been so much space to the left if she wasn't originally in it? Exactly. And she, she's so eye-catching. The, the, the shape her body creates in the space, that strong diagonal line. Which connects you back to Elizabeth and then back down exactly. and back over to her. Right. It's so intentional. I don't fully believe that that's possible. But there's theories and theories and theories about this painting. The people just are tossing everything at the wall to see what sticks. It's so interesting. Even though Elizabeth is like this bright white shape, mm-hmm. her monochromatic quality, even though she's in the front, makes her less eye-catching yes. than Dido. Because your eye always goes to contrast. Right. I didn't even notice the blue azure scarf. It's just the tones that are used to paint her face give it more dimension you can see mm-hmm. you can truly just see her face better like the way her right. eyes go in the way her nose comes out like the actual contour of a human face right. is just more engaging it is and so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, pose with her kind of pointing at her cheek some people think it's her pointing at her dimples A lot of people have equated it to the Hindu deity Krishna, which comes from a story in which he basically impersonates someone and um, at the end kind of points to his cheek and and makes a comment that implies that all of them are the same. So the implication of this being her pointing to her cheek is saying, I am the same as my cousin. I don't know that I also totally buy that story, but it's one that I saw a lot of places as a theory. That's cool. I just assumed it was the dimples too. Yeah. That's what I, I mean. I thought it was the dimples, or it was just like a very sweet pose, or like a I have a secret, that kind of thing. Gosh, I don't, I just don't know enough. I look at these paintings, and I, the choices that they have women making with their bodies in paintings are all the time so weird. So weird. <laughs> if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see a totally different painting of Dido Bell that was done by Michaela Henry Lowe as part of the Kenwood House's series that they're calling Painting the Past. This is, in terms of color, we're just totally opposite. It's it's so mo- It's just so modern. It's so modern. I love this painting so much. The color choices. Okay, I'll let you talk about it. 
Okay, so it the background is an orange, like, classic wallpaper kind mm-hmm. of design, a little funky flower shape. And then Dido is front and center, standing in the arms relaxed kind of cup together in front of like, her lower stomach. She's in a dress that's this rich, beautiful green. And the artist did such a cool job Making the folds of the fabric? Yes. It's so simple and so effective. And the lace. there, There's lace on the collar and on the edges of the arms that are see-through with the green and the orange That's just in just a really cool way. In the one, I'm looking at all the symbols and the things that are going on. In this one, I'm looking at the technique, mm-hmm. which is cool. And there's also very strong lighting on Dido in this. Yes. Like, you can see she has p- pearls around her neck, but you can see the way the light is hitting her collarbones and moving around the planes of her face. And it, to me, almost evokes like a spotlight. Like the lighting is so strong. That's a really good point. I never even considered. I was really looking at how cool of a choice it was to have her outlined completely in white and giving it a... It's an, a beautiful classic oil painting with a really modern twist that makes it feel almost kind of like a, a sticker or um, pop art in a way with the strong outlines. Yeah, I didn't even think about the kind of pop art idea. It does look like it. you could reach and pull the sticker of her off mm-hmm. the wallpaper. It, that, it's cool. So the artist is Michaela Henry Lowe, and she's a Jamaican artist based in London And her vibrant portraits celebrate the beauty of black women. Her primary interest is the representation of black women in society. And this painting, like I said, is a painting of Dido Elizabeth Bell for Kenwood House in their Painting the Past series, which focuses on depicting six historic figures from the African diaspora whose stories have contributed to England's rich history. So this is, or was, at some point hanging in the Kenwood house? Absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. I think it's amazing. And it brings me back to that quote from Ama Asante, who created the movie Belle, saying how important it was for her to walk into that place and see someone that looked like her. And I read stories about people saying, walking in and bringing, there was a woman who wrote an article about bringing her daughter to Kenwood house, and her daughter was like, mom, mom, that woman looks like me, seeing Dido's painting on the wall. It's so – It's a, I love that they did this whole painting in the past series and taking these incredible people and bringing them to the forefront so more people today can see them and more people can see themselves in history as more than just a servant or a slave. Yeah, the more stories that are told, the more people you can bring in to the fold. Like, God, I hate that that rhymed. Just <laughs> the, <laughs> the more people that you can access and, you know, really touch where it counts. Representation is so important. Yes. And it's easy for us to say because we're represented all the time. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I just watched the documentary on Netflix about Abercrombie and Fitch. God. Oh, really? Talking about how they chose to market exclusivity and they were incredibly racist and made very horrible choices. That tracks. And, you know, at the end, now Abercrombie has revamped themselves and they're like rainbow capitalism and all the good representation stuff and like objectively are they still trying to sell us t-shirts yes is it better that they're not being openly racist still yes yes i we've talked about this before on the podcast and i wrote a whole paper on it in college back when the whole dove like real beauty movement came out Mm. because it's that question of 
can a company be on your side? If, if a company is pitching, we're for you, we're here for you, we're doing this for you. No, you're not. You're doing it for money. That's why you're a company. But if what they're doing is pushing culture to a place that is healthier and better and more inclusive, that is a good thing separate from the morals and values of the company. And it's something that we as consumers should push for even more. So yes, there's rainbow capitalism. There's the horrible target pride displays, all of that. But the fact that they are being displayed is a good thing. And we should push for that more. Couldn't have said it better. There's nuance. You can't just say capitalism is always bad. Well, yeah, but marketing to a wider variety of people is a positive within that corporate circus that Mm -hmm. you're trying to address. Right. Change is slow and incremental, but it is possible. Shop small. Shop small and shop local. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we're on to my second part of my story, which is a, a letter from Elizabeth to her children. And this came from hope and, and you know, I, I don't know how many of our listeners know, but my nephews are both mixed race. They're half black, half white. And talking with my brother-in-law about, you know, his experience as a black man in America and his thoughts on having children who very clearly are black to two black boys and the kind of things that he'll have to talk to them about and explain to them that – I, as, you know, growing up a white woman, never had to think of, it was really eye-opening for for me and for my family. I mean, it was really eye-opening for us to just realize the kind of things that they're going to have to go through that we can't protect them from. And that kind of emotional place is where this part of the story came from. To my dearest children, I'm writing this to you in the hopes that you live in a world with more open arms than that of the one I was born into. I hope it's a world that sees you for the person that you are and not the color of your skin. One in which you are defined by your words and your actions instead of the body you inherited. I cannot say that I am overly hopeful that this is the case. However, in all my years on this earth, I have learned the importance of hope, however small it might be. Hope, combined with hard work, is the key to change. It's not always fast, and Lord knows it's not even always linear, but it is real. Once something has been given to you, it's hard to take it back, and I promise you, my children, that I am fighting for this world to give you more than it has ever graced upon me. So my ask of you, my dearest ones, is to demand everything. Demand to have equality, Respect and to have your voice heard. Demand it often and demand it loudly. You will hit walls often head first, I'm afraid, but you must stay strong. Be stubborn as an ox, yet fluid as the river. Your life will be that of contradictions, hard yet soft, tough but gentle, proud yet humble. But remember this, you must bend often, but never break. Society will try to break you. Agonizingly, slowly, and bit by bit, they will try to wear you down into nothing. They will try to make you into something so small that they can crush you under their boot. But that will not be you. 
my child, because you know how to be strong, how to be brave, and you know that you need to be twice as good to be seen as an equal. Life will not be easy for you, but it has the chance to be exceptional. And I will pray every day that you know a world so unlike mine that these words mean nothing at all. A scary story of the cruel past. A history lesson. But in the event that these words do ring true, take heart that I have paved a path for you to follow. All my love, your mother. I love that you gave us a letter from her after this kind of through line of the way that at least the way that people have remembered Dido, the way we've had access to her through diary right. entries and things. Language is so much a part of how we can understand who she was. Right. And then just imagining how she might have communicated in her own words is just really is just really moving. And and the way I wanted to capture the way that she saw the world and experienced the world and then, you know, as a mother wanting more for your children. Yeah. And and pushing for it, but knowing that you can't spare them from some of the stuff that they will almost certainly experience and the heartbreak in that. And I, the idea that Dido must have been so tough, she mm-hmm. must have had so much fortitude to do what she did, accomplish what she accomplished, lived as she lived, and yet remember that that is also manifested very often as tenderness. Mm-hmm. And love is very important. And I, I'm glad you did that because I have to remind myself when I look back at history, like, oh, yeah, these people must have been so tough to survive in any given situation, war, uh, right. famine, uh, Great Depression. But it, that's not actually what it's like every day. Right. It's all these tiny little moments of times you could connect with someone or you could pull yourself up and just all the little moments. Mm-hmm. And choosing to continue on and keep trying and keep pushing and keep fighting for yourself, even if no one else around you is doing it. So that painting that's so famous that will, of course, be on our Instagram. I say this with no expertise at all, just my own desire. I want it to have been that way on purpose. And Mm -hmm. I want her to be pulling her into the painting. Mm -hmm. I choose the positive of this. I want it. I am available to be proven wrong at any given moment, but that's my dream. I'm fully with you. I'm available to be proven wrong, but until you have any proof, I'm taking it as Dido had a true friend in her cousin Elizabeth, and they chose this portrait together. I like to imagine they got up to little schemes and things together. Yeah. Uh, It seems they really loved each other. Like, they thought of each other as sisters. It seems they were really close, so I'm hoping for that. I don't... I also don't have any siblings. My closest would be cousins or mm-hmm. you. And I feel like cousins are the people that'll like make your day amazing and they'll also wreck you. They'll be so honest with you. But then yeah, they'll see, also, for me, like, that's siblings because I, my cousins, I don't have a ton of cousins my age. I also have like 800,000 cousins. So, and we live pretty far away from them. So, my, my cousins were like a couple times a year situation. Whereas my siblings, it was like, <laughs> we can't escape each other. We're all here all the time. Oh, no. No, I... But I have, like, more siblings than you have cousins. Like, it's... Yeah, no, that's so true. (laughs) (laughs) 
thank you for moving that episode up to the spring, thank even though we had it planned me. for a little bit later. I was really, I was looking forward to it. So when you were like, we're moving it, I was like, good. Was like, thank you. Yeah, it was for like late summer. And I was like, can we please do it now? I really want to research it. <laughs> <laughs> so Tracy, tell me something good. Okay. So hi, Lola. My Something Good is a book that I'm reading, but I haven't finished. So hopefully by the time this episode airs, I'll have finished it. But if not, no spoilers. It is The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Uh, you know, you've mentioned this to me a couple times, and I am, oh God, trying to care about A Court of Thorns and Roses. I'm sure it's a great series. This is no shade. It's just not grabbing me. Should I switch to this book? I need some, Tracy, I need something to grab me. I need like a fiction that'll, that'll this'll, say. Like, this will grab you. This is, so this is so different from A Court of Thorns and Roses, which is like, I would think of as kind of brainless, if you know, fairy romance. This is a really beautifully done mystery. And, and you'll love the vibes, Rowan. The vibes are like rainy day in the English countryside. That is the energy of this book. I'm not going to spoil anything, but just know that it is a re- – it was a really clever mystery. It's kind of sci-fi, but more the fi than the sci. Like there's just a little bit of like not quite <laughs> how our world – Can you world- say that again? Because <laughs> someone just – I was talking to someone about it and they described it as sci-fi. I was like, it's not sci-fi at all. It takes place in like the 1920s to 30s in England. Like what are you talking about? Because I think of science fiction as, like, science fiction. Science. Science. And this is more like, oh, it's fiction with kind of vaguely, like, unexplained supernatural-ish elements. Like, things aren't quite how we experience them. I'm not... More fi than sci. That is exactly... More fi than sci. Thank you. (laughs) So the writing style is just gorgeous. I'm obsessed with the way the the author uh, writes the story. Um... I was hooked immediately, and then a bunch of twists and turns happened that made me even more hooked. Uh, I love the audiobook. I love listening to it while I'm driving. I listen to it on the flight to Portugal. It's be- it's beautifully narrated. So uh, that is my recommendation and my something good. Oh, good, because I, I guess I'm not in the mood for a fairy romance, so maybe I'll pivot. Mm-hmm. Recommend it. It's great. So, Rowan, now it's your turn. Tell me something good. I have two. First of all, and this is going to be coming out later, so it might not be in theaters anymore, but if you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once, figure out how to watch it right now. Okay, it give is... me the, the two-minute – no, that's too long. 30 no, seconds. No, wait. It's okay. I have the IMDb right here. <laughs> oh, I'll good. Give you... Okay. An aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connecting with the lives she could have led. Oh, that's so cool. It's Michelle Yeoh as the lead. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. I, I guess now I need to go to the movies. Uh, okay. <laughs> this is one of the best films that I have seen in years. Wow. I say without reservation, I cried, um, but it's it was it was a happy cry. Okay. You you just have to be prepared to have feelings. Okay. Um, it they yassified the multiverse. Oh, I love that, <laughs> Tracy. You will love this movie. Okay. Okay. I'm on board. I'm sold. Uh, 
And speaking of freaking representation mattering, it's got subtitles. It is... uh, uh, mm, I I don't even have words for how amazing this movie is. It's just... Say the name again. uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once. And it was directed by... I've always heard to them referred to as the Daniels. It's Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Okay. And they're a pair of directors. Yeah. This movie was done, I think, for $25 million, which is basically no money for a blockbuster. I know that sounds crazy. I know me saying multiple <laughs> millions is no money is absolutely absurd, and that's because it is absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. But for this movie to be at the level that it could exist in, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. and have been made with that little money with such a small team. Right. Uh. (laughs) um yeah and of course like who doesn't want to watch michelle yo for two hours she's incredible perfect yeah she's perfect okay Um, i'm sold all right so that was your first one okay so that's my first one and then the second one is just like a fun little thing i went out for lunch with my friend amanda the other day and we went out to this it's this restaurant in Los Angeles that apparently is very popular, and I hadn't heard of it. It's mm. called Sugar Taco. Um, it's a vegan taco restaurant, so it's oh, all, so it's perfect for you. It's amazing, uh, and they y- you can get vegan horchata, and I love horchata and can never have it. Right. And they give it to you if you get a big one in a jar that you can just keep. And so since then, I have been back with the jar. I'm like, can I? Can I please have it? <laughs> I mean, when you can I tell eat everything you, at that place. That's incredible. Yes. When I tell you I wrecked carne asada fries. Um, yeah. But it was just so nice. It's so – I always feel very revived when I go out for lunch one-on-one or in a very small group mm-hmm. with people. And you can just actually sit and talk and share food. I actually and, just did that this morning. We went to – the little bakery, you know, the bakery near me oh, that we love. Oh, yeah, I do know. Um, and it was just me and Jamie and a friend of ours uh, who we haven't seen in a bit. And we all just chat. We got coffee and uh, Jamie and I got so many pastries. They gave us like a big box to put them all in. No regrets. And we just, same thing, just sat and like had a lovely meal and, and caught up with friends. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Well, anyway, apparently, if anybody lives in L.A., apparently this spot is famous. Like, when I said that I didn't know it, multiple people were like, okay, do you live under a rock? (laughs) Um, I I never heard of it, so what do I know? But it's it's worth a hike. Can confirm. Okay. Okay. But, you know, people. People make things good. Yeah. I can't believe I said that. No one ever clipped that and repeat it back to me. No one ever admit that I said that before. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear it here first, folks. You certainly did not. Reputation to maintain. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rowan, we did the thing. We did our episode on Dido Elizabeth Bell. Thank you for doing all the research. Oh, my God. It was genuinely my pleasure. And thank you all so much for listening. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. 
Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. English Heritage describes this time as the period in which... Did you say English? English? I probably did. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking heritage and English. 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 Why say two words when you can say one word?